Hi, this is Lynette Nylander, host of NTS Radio's new podcast, Sounds and Style. Each week, I'll be chatting with some of culture's most influential figures, exploring how music and style links what we wear with who we are. Expect deep cuts into musical genres and fashion subcultures as my guests and I look at how the music they love has informed the work they make today. This season, I've been chatting with Lily Allen, Martine Rose, Mel Ottenberg, and many more. New episodes drop every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. NTS. You are listening to Don't Assume. I'm Zakia, and in this podcast, I'll be talking to pioneers, disruptors, and innovators about their lives and music. My feeling about music is based on my relationship to it. And I remember there was a time in my life when I thought the world was insane. I knew my life was insane. And the only thing that helped make sense of it was music. And music helped me think, okay, I'm not crazy. We're going to work things out. We're going to figure things out. Today, I'm on the line with Mark Mothersbaugh from his studio in Los Angeles. Mark is a founding member and frontman of the iconic new wave act, Devo. The band were formed in his home state of Ohio in 1970, in the aftermath of the Kent State University shootings, where students protesting the Vietnam War were gunned down by the National Guard. The band set out to critique the apparent regression, the devolution of American society through their art. After years of subversive takes on mainstream culture and consumerism, Devo suddenly found themselves signed to Warner Brothers, and with the debut album produced by Brian Eno and David Bowie, they had truly broken into the system they were critiquing. As well as being a celebrated visual artist, Mark has built a legacy as a theme tune and soundtrack composer. He's made music for film, TV, commercials and games, such as Rugrats, Marvel, Crash Bandicoot and Wes Anderson. I'm chatting to Mark just before he embarks on a new Devo tour. And as an artist who spent the last 50 years infiltrating the mainstream and subverting it from the inside, I think it's fair to say he subscribes to a don't assume philosophy. So I want to I want to sort of begin at the beginning and I wonder if you could tell me about your early influences. You know, were you brought up in a musical household? I got my first pair of glasses. I I was legally blind and managed to walk to school for 2 years before somebody decided to give me an eye check and they said, "Well, you can't even see the big E on the eye chart from about 12 inches away. He's he's totally blind." So uh, I got my first pair of glasses just before I turned 8 years old and I saw clouds for the first time and saw birds and saw the tops of houses and I saw what a tree looked like. I'd seen pictures of them in books, but I'd only seen the part that I'd run into before. But at seven, I started taking keyboard lessons at our house. I decided right away that music was invented just to torture me. I had to sit there and play things on this keyboard and my friends would go by and look in the window and laugh and like wave and I'd be like, yeah, get out of here. It wasn't until I was 12 and um, found out about the British invasion. That totally blew my mind. And I remember thinking, that's why I've been spending my whole life being tortured, learning how to play an instrument, so I could do what those guys are doing. I just, at 12, I decided I was going to be in a band. 
So fast forward to when you started Devo. For listeners who perhaps aren't familiar with that story and with the meaning of the name, could you tell me about that? Yeah, um, I, I became an artist. And although there was never any talk about getting to go to college because it's so expensive, I had an art teacher who took pity on me in high school. And I'd won some local county art shows, you know, nothing of any importance, but it was enough to get me a little, you know, get these first prize things. And there was something at Kent State there was a program for students that showed that they had maybe some talent in some particular area, whether it was math or art even. You could submit, you know, a request for a partial scholarship. I came into school, you know, I was in my senior year, and she, my teacher said, oh, you've been accepted to Kent State on a partial scholarship, which meant that I could get a job working at night and... I could pay my way through school. I could come up with the half of the money that I needed to pay my way. And I was like, oh, I would much rather do that than go to Vietnam, which was probably my other choice. Because right in 1969, 1968, I mean, it was hot and heavy over there. And everybody was getting, you know, all the enlistees were already gone. And then they were drafting people. They were just like, if you didn't have like some sort of a deferment, you, you were on your way to Vietnam. When I met Jerry, we both kind of got involved in demonstrations at Kent State. We marched from campus down to um, the Army recruiting station uh, on Main Street in Kent. And I remember standing in front of other people and like feeling like very empowered. We're telling them, get us out of Vietnam. Stop sending Americans over there to drop bombs on people. They got enough problems. They got communism, whatever that is, you know. Don't blow people up because of that. That doesn't make sense to us. And I'm standing there and I'm seeing people peeking out of curtains that are at the army recruiting station. And then rocks are coming from over my head and going through windows. I was like, wait a minute, I didn't sign on for this. I'm not a violent person. That's not me. Um, the next day, Jerry was at the final demonstration where they shot over 30 kids and killed four of them. You know, it's like, for us, it was just a shock. They shut down the school, and we were like, what just happened? It became very disappointing to find out that you could protest a war, or you could say, hey, I'm against it, but if you started irritating the people in power in the United States at that time, they said, okay, shut them down. And that's exactly what they did. They gave the National Guard live ammo and gave them permission to just shoot people. And it, the whole younger generation that was, that was like trying to change the world and was trying to change America for sure went to sleep. During that time, Jerry would come over and we'd talk about what was happening, what was really going on. You know, it's like, if protest and revolution don't work, how do you change things? You know, we were trying to figure out how do you change things in this world? We realized the powers could just shut you down anytime they wanted to. After the Kent State shootings, the music that came out was like concert rock, like Kansas and Styx, Boston. And there was no longer anything that was like revolutionary or, or you know, about social justice. Uh, music became about, I'm white I'm a misogynist, I'm a capitalist, I'm a conspicuous consumer, and I'm proud of it. That was the politics of rock music, basically, at, at that time point. I mean, the other music that was happening was disco. To me and Jerry and the other Devo guys, we were kind of like, wow, they have great sounds, but it's 
stupid. The lyrics were all stupid for the most part. What happened to the Bob Dylans and the uh, Country Joe and the Fish and people that took a stand for things that were correct, you know? Bob Lewis and Jerry found this book. It was written by a, a Yugoslavian anthropologist. It was called The Beginning Was the End, How Man Came Into Being Through Cannibalism. The book was kind of like absurd in a way, but on the other hand, he was basically making an argument that humans were the one unnatural species. We were the ones out of touch with nature. We were the ones that were damaging the planet. We love that. We, you know, I mean, there was, I mean, there were things in his his arguments that were like not great, but to us it was kind of like repudiating both science and religion, and it was kind of about something more basic, and that was that humans were out of line with nature. And um, we liked that. So in 73, Bob Casale at a rehearsal started playing this guitar riff. Alan started putting in this kind of odd backwards drum beat, and then Jerry started playing a bass part over it, and Bob Mothersbaugh started putting a second guitar in it. Somehow I just ended up singing uh, Satisfaction lyrics over it, and it made us all laugh. And so we thought, rock and roll's over, what's next? That's how Devo started. We're attempting to play places around Ohio, but there was nobody that wanted to hire us, really. Uh, you know, it's like we had to lie and say we did top 40 cover songs and then come out and go, all right, here's another one by, you know, uh, Kenny Rogers called Uncontrollable Urge, you know, and then after a while, people would go, okay, this isn't funny anymore, and then they'd, they'd pay us to leave. And so we already learned from... Kent State and from things that were going on in the late 60s, early 70s, and that rebellion is obsolete and doesn't really change things for the better. How, how do you change things and who does? We're looking around and we go, it's Madison Avenue. It's TV commercials. It's radio commercials. It's newspapers. You know, there was a, a Burger King commercial. McDonald's was the ruling ruler of of the United States fast food restaurants. And Burger King did this commercial where they took Pachabell's Cannon, which was a very beautiful song, and they put lyrics on it that went, hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, special orders don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us serve it your way. And Burger King shot up till it was up there, you know, almost a parody with McDonald's uh, after that ad commercial. We were like, subversion, that's how you do it. You... You change things in this world, not through like going out and arguing for what's right against people that are stronger than you. You sneak into the system, change things from inside. And so that's when we decided, well, let's, let's get a record deal. We changed the sound of the band. We got Alan Myers to play drums, who was kind of like a human metronome. Before that, we sounded like uh, uh, Captain Beefheart meets an Italian sci-fi movie. It became a little more something people could recognize once, once we had a real drum and then Bob Casale joined the band, so we had five of us. And that allowed me to like step out from behind uh, an, an, a synthesizer and I could uh, march around the stage and rant and, and preach and move around so we had more of a stage show. Obviously, you know, when you started out, there was this sense of a need to critique what you saw as the flaws of American society. And, you know, as you say, this sense that things were going backwards. Where do you feel we are, you know, 50 years on? 
Did you ever see the movie Idiocracy? I think we've been living it, if you ever get a chance to see it. I think the way politics have gone off the rail, people are using the internet not only just to give you incredible, great information really fast, but also to send out misinformation. It puts you in a position where you have to really like investigate things because you can take things for granted that aren't even true, you know? People in the United States, for sure, and probably all around the world, they hear things and they want to believe them because they heard it on the internet or they saw it on their phone or something. And just this whole thing of spreading misinformation, it's a pretty crazy time we're in. Things are kind of really disintegrating. Do you think that music has the power to change any of that? And if so, you know, do you feel like there is enough protest music today? My feeling about music is based on my relationship to it. And I remember there was a time in my life when I thought the world was insane. I knew my life was insane. And the only thing that helped make sense of it was music. And music helped me think, okay, I'm not crazy. We're going to work things out. We're going to figure things out. I think music has that potential with people because it fills in those voids that things like the pandemic or things like just regulations that go against something inside you that you think something's not right and then music helps helps you pull things together or make sense out of the world and I think music still has an important uh, mission in that area. We're calling this our 50-year anniversary because uh, I guess 50 years ago something happened. For sure satisfaction happened like 50 years ago and maybe other things did but um, what's really important is the next 50 years. I think Devo's message and other people, what their message should be is mutate, don't stagnate. One person at a time, we all need to become more conscious of how we relate to the planet and how we fit in and what things are beneficial to planet Earth as opposed to humans being the center of everything. I mean, a lot of religions put humans in the center, like, hail man, uh, this planet was here for us to plunder. I think that's an outmoded thinking, and I think we need to modify that. We need to upgrade the way humans relate to the planet. And music can do that. The same brain that invented gasoline and combustible engine vehicles can also come up with whatever the next thing forward is going to be, and the next thing forward doesn't have to be destructive to the planet. It's a forward motion. What we have to do is, is figure out how to be responsive and to be responsible about what there is on this planet and, and how to manage it so we don't make it look like Mars in a million years. You want it to be using your minds to mutate in a positive way, positive mutation. So tell me about the shift or that kind of alternative path you've been on composing for games, film and TV and how you square that up with the politics and mission of your work with Devo. We signed with a record label. We do five albums. It was a thing where you would write 12 songs. You would rehearse them. You would record them. You would make an album. We came up with a, a live touring show, you know, like a, what a stage show would be, what our costumes would be. And we, we made a film to go along with it. There wasn't an MTV yet, but we were totally convinced that sound and vision was the future. We'd go out on tour, and then a year later, we'd start over again, and I'd get to write 12 songs with the guys. 
We'd rehearse them, blah, 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 record them, blah, blah, blah. And uh, we did that five times. And to me, it was kind of like all the touring sort of started becoming like um, Groundhog Day, where, you know, you'd wake up in the morning, you'd get on another airplane, you'd go to another city, you'd play shows that you'd written, you know, 10 years ago, and then you'd get back on a plane, and then you'd do it to the next city. And, and so I wasn't as excited about performance but um, something happened after we did uh, uh, five albums with Warners and a couple with Enigma where we found ourselves on a label that, that had gone bankrupt. I'd had people ask me to score things for them before. Uh, uh, my friend Paul Rubens, who, who was Pee Wee Herman, he had asked me to score his movie, but Devo was touring, so I couldn't say yes. But then after Enigma went bankrupt, he said, well, Mark, you know, I know you couldn't do it when I asked you to do the movie, but now that I've I've got a TV show now, would you score that for me? And I'm like, okay, that sounds interesting. So on Monday, he gave me a tape. On Tuesday, I wrote 12 songs worth of music. On Wednesday, I recorded it. On Thursday, I put it in a mail, and either a courier would carry it on an airplane because there was no internet back then, or um, it would go to New York. On Friday, they would mix it on into the show. On Saturday morning, we watched the episode of TV. And on Monday, I got another tape to write another album's worth of music. And I was like, sign me up for this job. And I did some commercials right after that. I did a commercial. Kids in a giant hall somewhere were dancing to a projection of robots looking like what we had projected on the wall in, in Devo. It was almost exact. It was for a product called Hawaiian Punch, which I wasn't into. And there's like these robots are being you know put together with pneumatic drills and stuff. And so I went to a garage and I recorded things like, the only lyrics in the commercial was, Hawaiian Punch, it hits you in all the right places. There's a drum fill afterwards that goes boodoom, boodoom, boodoom. And under that drum fill, I put my voice going, sugar is bad for you. And I put it in the commercial. And so <laughs> after we got it mixed, Bob Casale, who was my engineer, uh, we went to the clients. They're watching the video on the screen that this uh, computer animator had done, and they're listening to the music. And the guy's tapping his pen, you know, on the desk. And then it goes, Hawaiian punch. It hits you in all the right places. And then boom, 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 boom. Sugar is bad for you. And at the end of the commercial, Bob Casale just looks at me like, oh, my God, we're going to be in so much trouble. And the guy who was tapping his pen jumps up and goes, yeah, Hawaiian punch does hit you in all the right places. And Bob just looked at me like, you are so lucky. And we were like, I can't believe... Nobody noticed it. But, you know, we put it down like a subliminal message, you know, in the, in the piece. So I guarantee you people heard it uh, anywhere in the world that listened to the spot. <laughs> Not everybody, because a lot of people, they just don't think they're hearing that, you know, when you put a subliminal message in. They don't – you don't always consciously hear it. It's something – so we started getting – I got, I got an award for the music and blah, blah, blah. So – um, we started getting all these commercial offers, and because of Pee Wee's Playhouse, I got all these TV show offers. But with commercials, we'd just we'd take them, and then we'd put in like little things underneath that would say like question authority, or are we not men? 
you know, we, we, we you know, I just kept putting things in, and I, and I, I have a reel. I actually have a reel of about thirty of those commercials where I, where I highlight it, so you can tell where the um, subliminal message is. Somewhere along the line, I stopped for a while because somebody called me up from one of the agencies. He was like mixing the, the music into the picture, and he goes, "Mark, I heard what you did. I need you to take that out." <laughs> and I went like, "Oh, sorry, I didn't think we sent that version to you." You did. Fix it. And so I had to fix a spot and take the subliminal message out. And so I didn't do as many commercials <laughs> after that. But It sounds like you had a good run. Yeah, and it was like not just commercials you could do it in. You could do it in TV. You could do it in films. And so there's a lot of stuff where there's nothing wrong with it in the first place. You know, you're, it's like a, a Wes Anderson movie and you really like it. But you can add things to everything. You know, you can add stuff and... Um, that's been part of my enjoyment of working in uh, the entertainment industry is, is finding projects that, that need a little extra special care. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm going to have to go and look up that Hawaiian Punch advert now and see if I can uh, decipher the subliminal message. Although I have to tell you something funny. In 1976, Devo played at the Akron Art Museum and we opened up with the Chuck Statler film, The Truth About Evolution. After we did this little show, it was like a fundraiser or something for them. You know, For us, it was just a chance to get to play on a stage because nobody wanted us. Afterwards, this woman came up and she was really angry. And she goes, I saw what you guys were doing. Jerry and I just looked at each other. We stopped what we were, you know, you know, taking our equipment apart. And she's like, I saw what you guys were doing. I know what you were doing. And we looked at each other. We go, what are you talking about? She goes, I saw you put subliminal messages in that movie. And we're like, what? And she goes, I saw the word submit, and I saw the word obey. And we looked at each other, and we go, ah, what a great idea. <laughs> and that, that's where we first, that's where it first became something that, that, uh, that interested us. I wanted to ask you about the Rugrats, because, you know, that theme tune was sort of the soundtrack to my childhood. And I think a lot of other listeners who kind of grew up in the 90s will feel the same. How did that come about? And is there a subliminal message in the Rugrats theme tune that we should be uh, listening out for? Well, how it came about was I'd done a number of shows by then, uh, uh, a number of TV shows. And I got a call from this company called Klosky Chupo, Arlene Klosky and Gabor Chupo. And Gabor, he loved eccentric music and he loved art music. And he'd collected a couple albums I'd done in Japan because I used to write about the same time period as Rugrat came out. I, I used to write songs and produce songs for uh, Japanese art bands like Hajime Tachibana, people like that, you know, and, and I'd get to go over there and, and work with them. And I also just wrote a lot of music just for myself. So I wanted to have music to listen to around my house, but I didn't want it to be like Zen or yuppie music, exercise music or something. But I wanted music without lyrics that I could just play in my house while I was doing things, you know, working on stuff. And, and um, I wrote this music, Music for Insomniacs. And uh, it got put out by a, a label called Tokyo Radical Artists. But anyhow, this guy Gabor had found it, and he says, I want to take one of your Music for Insomniacs song, and is it okay if I use one of those for the theme song for Rugrats? And I go, well, um, Gabor, I've been scoring TV for a number of years now, two or three years now. Why don't you, would you be interested in letting me write something for you in that style? And he goes, yeah. So I wrote him a theme song. They liked it. 
And they were just creating the show, you know. It's like they were just putting it all together, what the show was going to be. They ended up hiring me to score the TV show. And I, I used for bass instruments and other instruments, I would, like, use voices because so, I was using a Fairlight, Devo's Fairlight, and I would go, like, ball, 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 ball. I'd use ball sounds or do, 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 do. It was kind of fun to write for it because I was using, you know, my voice doing percussive or doing like bass or or other sounds, you know, like a horn sound or something. And and uh, the show, it was one of the first things at Nickelodeon. We'd been doing it for a couple years, and they said, Mark, would you want to score our film for us? And I go, what? They go, yeah, we're going to do a feature film for Rugrats. And I go, really? Uh, I mean, you know, when you're a composer, it's a pretty solitary thing. You're sitting in a room, usually smaller than the one I'm in now, but I've been in this one for like 30 years now. But you're sitting in a room like this, and you're you're looking at, at the screen, and you're just writing, and you're working, and you work day and night, and you're just putting all this music together. And then when you're done with the project, you go... You come up for air and you go, okay, who who got who won the presidential election? You know, it's like stuff like that. You know, you're just tunnel vision. And he said, well, I'll tell you what's happened is Viacom that puts Nickelodeon out, they're worldwide. And we've been dubbing the Rugrat characters in every language. Right at this moment in time, Rugrats is the most recognized cartoon characters in the whole world. More than Mickey Mouse, more than Donald Duck. And I was like, really? Lucky for me... They'd never worked with another composer, so when they went to Paramount to do the movie, the guy over at Paramount said, oh, oh, no, but you can't use that guy. You know, he's never scored with an orchestra. He's never scored a feature film. You can't do that. And they go, well, he created our sound, and he owns the publishing to our theme song. So then they went, oh. So I had to trade away all this publishing I had because Paramount wanted to control it and Viacom wanted to control it. But that was my catch-22 where I got to write music for an orchestra. So I have many, many good memories of Rugrats. Just because I'm very, very curious, is there a subliminal message in Rugrats that people should be listening out for or or not? Oh, my God. You know how many episodes there are now? I don't. There have been subliminal messages through the years, both in just the stuff I did and in the movies. I'm sure there is on everything. Uh, it, It was such an easy thing to do. And after a while, Bob Casale just got used to me doing it. You'd go, that's too loud, Mark. I want to know, you know do, you, do you take the same creative approach, writing songs for Devo and then things like projects like the Rugrats or other kind of games? And obviously there's playfulness in the music that you wrote for Devo as well, but you know, does that sort of open up possibilities for you working with these in these different mediums? Getting to work in film and TV and in games, it gave me a chance to learn about like a jazz quartet, a jazz quintet a country-western band, solo vocalists uh, to work with string quartets, wind quartets, big orchestras, little orchestras, big synth arrangements, small synth arrangements. I got to work with just about every kind of a band that's out there because for all the bad things there are to say about L.A., some of the good ones are there's amazing players here from all over the world. So if you want to have a, a sitar band, put a sitar band together for next Friday, you can do it. And, and, you know, Devo was always collaborative. Jerry and I always worked together. You know, if it was with videos, it was, Chuck Statler would, would join in and we'd all work together on it. If it was music, it could be, 
you know, like just other band members, or it could be maybe like a, an interesting producer like Bob Margoloff or something. So we were always collaborative, and um, it made it easy to just find the things that were enjoyable with scoring. The reality is you get a script and you read it and you go, wow, this is pretty good. I wonder how they're going to screw it up. And so you sign and now you're going to be the composer. And then they send you the first edit and you go, oh, that's how they're going to screw it up. Because it's really hard to make something great. It really is. It's hard to make something great with all these different people in it. Even the best directors, they can tell you there's like, there's like hidden booby traps and time bombs that can go off that you maybe have no control over, you know? What I've found with music is that even if it's a show that I don't like, but I'm, you know, contractually have to do it, I really work hard to figure out, I'm going to write some music somewhere in this film that if you just took away the film and just had that piece of music, you would say, well, that was worth it for, for me being here. I got to hear this piece of music. You know, even with all my projects I do now, I always have that kind of thought in my head that I want to make something that I feel is great. And if the show's amazing on top of it, if it's a, one of Taika Waititi's funnier shows or one of um, uh, Wes Anderson's better films or Phil Lord and Chris Miller, one of their better movies, it's like um, all the better then, you know. You've composed music for some of the most well-known games, including Crash Bandicoot and The Sims. Can you tell me a little bit more about what drew you to this kind of work and how you approach it? One of the things I found out that was interesting to me was that is one of the only ways that people that don't write music get to hear what it's like to write a song. It's kind of, it became interesting to me to think about it that way, that my kids don't know you start off with, you know, you're playing one instrument, you know, and whatever it is, you then start adding on other things. Maybe it's drums, maybe it's a guitar, maybe it's a backup vocal, maybe it's whatever, but they don't all happen instantaneously at the same time. You need to come up with really strong bulletproof themes. It's not like if somebody watches a TV show, and they're only going to watch the show one time. Like, the first time you play it, you only get five minutes in, and then you wipe out. You have to start at the beginning. And every time you do it, you learn the pattern of that layer of the game, so you go through it faster. But at the first time you're doing each layer, you know, you're learning it. You hear the music for a long time. When you're doing a game, it's like you come in and you're on the first level, and Homer Simpson's running around a food court. I had to do this one time. And he's running around a food court and he's looking for food. There's different things he wants to find on his plate. So he goes over and he gets a slice of pizza. The bass starts going boom, boom, doom, boom, 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 boom. And then he goes to the next thing and he finds a hoagie sandwich or a submarine sandwich or whatever it is. And then it's, there's like some woodwinds that go over top of it. And then as he picks up other things, you're adding more instruments on and you're making it more kinetic and dynamic and exciting. The music's building at the same speed as the player is, is accomplishing tasks in that layer. And so for me, what I find fascinating about games is that it exposes non-composers to a lot of what the process is like for a composer. Devo's tour is about to start, right? And there's a bit of confusion and speculation as to whether this is going to be your final tour. Can you set the record straight for us? I think that the tour got misnamed. You know how agents are? They're just trying to figure out how to put an angle on something and wring a few dollars out of people. 
I think it shouldn't have been called the farewell tour. Maybe it would have been better to call it the welfare tour. To me, all it is is it's the end of part one. Hopefully we have at least two full parts. I hope we make it to Devo 100 years. There's a good chance that some of us, myself, I'm speaking about, might not be physically here, but I'm sure by the time I'm really intently doing this, there will be an AI program I can buy and download everything. And so I, I won't be restricted by this physical form which you're looking at. I'm hoping we make it to the year 100, even if it's not in physical form. I don't think any of us will be in physical form by the time we're 150, but it's possible, but hopefully not. Hopefully we're all like those little sidewalk delivery things or one of those taxis that are driverless or something. We can, we can become something like that and each have our own, our own place and our own uh, method to keep going and to keep thinking and to keep um, mutating did that make sense, or does that? Yeah, that, that did that makes make sense. sense, or did that just sound no, ridiculous? Ma- <laughs> you don't have to like use any of that if you don't want to. It makes sense. I think we'll we'll all be kind of uh, looking forward to buying our our tickets to the AI Devo tour in whenever it is, twenty ninety nine. Don't assume is an NTS podcast produced by Lizzie King with sound recording by Jennifer Walton, edited by Femi Oriogun-Williams, and mixed by Felix Stock. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your podcast app. To support NTS, become an NTS supporter today. Head to nts.live forward slash supporters. Yes.